electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everyone. We've got another big market sell-off on our hands. I'm Kelly Evans. Welcome. The S&P back in a bear market. Crypto crashing, the 10-year yield and mortgage rate surging, and oil just turned positive with the Fed's big rate decision due in 48 hours. We've got Oswath Demodorin, Bill Lee, and others standing by. But first, let's kick things off this hour with Dom Chu and the very latest on these markets. That's a lot of red, Dom. It doesn't look very good either. And the reason why, we'll put it in relative context, it's been a very down session all day so far, and it remains that way. And even with a near 700-point loss on the Dow Industrials, believe it or not, that's still towards the middle-ish part of the trading range. To give you some idea, at the lows of the session, the Dow was down almost 900 points. By my count, around 899 points to the downside was where we kind of hit the lows at least so far today. The S&P 500 is down 3%, so an underperformer from the Dow. And then the Nasdaq Composite overall, what you could just see there before they flipped it, was also the real underperformer there. Now, a lot of that has to do with what's happening with interest rates overall. The interest rate picture is key here because it does drive a lot of that tr- growth trade and valuation. But at these levels, you got to go all the way back to April of 2011. That's the highest level again for rates since April of 2011. That is a huge reason why many of these technology stocks are in sell-off mode. Now, if we flip the screen over to what's happening with that mega cap technology trade, there are a handful of names that you often want to focus on with regard to what's happening. It will be Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, and Tesla. The reason why I put them in that order is because on a weighting basis, they are having varying effects on the NASDAQ trade. At one point today, given Amazon's 5.5% drop, it's having the most downside impact on that NASDAQ trade overall. But Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, and Tesla, among the biggest mega cap stocks out there on the market, they are the ones to focus on. They are driving a lot of that downside action. And then this is very much about the economic narrative about this idea that maybe a recession is in play, maybe higher fuel costs and everything else is driving so much of this thought that maybe the economy will slow down. And for that reason, among the worst performers in trading today are the travel and leisure stocks. Caesars Entertainment, Norwegian Cruise Lines, American Airlines, Booking Holdings, Live Nation, all down between 65 to 12%, Kelly. It is very, very severe to the downside for some of these economically sensitive names. Keep an eye on those in the afternoon trade, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Let's talk more about the sell-off and what the reset in valuation means for investors. Is the market now appropriately priced for the current economic environment? Joining us is Oswath Demodorin. He's NYU Stern School of Business Professor of Finance. Oswath, it's great to have you. I remember when we spoke last time, you've been worried about inflation. You said you were watching expectations in particular, and boy, did they go the wrong way on Friday. Is that what's changed here? I, I think inflation is front and center. It's, what, it's what's driving markets. Um, and at the, about, a week, uh, about three weeks ago, I said, we're going to settle in at inflation somewhere between 1% and 9%. Right. And the market's trying to figure out where we end up. I mean, right now, I think the market is pricing in that inflation long term is going to be 3.5%, not the 1.5% you saw 
in the in the last decade. And I think until we get to some steady state on expected inflation, which will require a few more months of actual inflation numbers coming through, we're going to be in for a, for a bit of pain and adjustment because uh, it's unsettling markets. You know, households are in this uh, kind of recessionary mindset already, and they look around and they go, okay, so value of the stock portfolio has fallen. Forget if you were in crypto, that's been decimated. Even their the value of their home, they're feeling a little shaky about. You know, even the prices have been up, but kind of where's the market going from here? What do you say to people who are looking for a real world inflation hedge and aren't, you know, they've got some I bonds maybe, but what else do you do right now? I mean, it'll take a little bit of a psychological adjustment. We've been spoiled by 20 years of low and stable inflation. I don't think there are very many people out there who manage their portfolios, manage their personal lives when inflation is high and unstable. And I think it'll take a few, you know, if not a few months, maybe a couple of years before people adjust to it. So I think the reason there's so much of a disconnect between, if you look at the at the, at the actual numbers, they don't. I mean, the unemployment is low. People are doing well, at least on paper, and how they feel about the future. That disconnect comes from the fear that inflation has brought into each of their lives. You talk as if we should expect this higher inflation for some time, but couldn't the Fed do something now to keep that from developing? See, this is where I think the Fed has lost the script. I mean, maybe a year ago, we could have talked about what the Fed could have done to stay in control. It's inflation driving the Fed now, not the Fed driving inflation. The FOMC is now reacting to what's happening in the market. That's not a great place for a central bank to be. But guess what? That's what they bought for themselves when they decided to wait and see last year. Well said. So building on that logic, then, does that mean they, they could and must still do something about it? It's just going to be with a bigger lag or bigger consequences? Absolutely. I mean, I think the pain is going to be greater because they waited a year. But I don't see a way out. I mean, there is no painless way to get out of an inflation spiral. It's either got to be a recession. And the question is for how long and how deep will the recession be? It's no longer a question of whether. It's become a question of when and how deep. What would you, again, as a student of history, understanding market psychology, consumer psychology and all the rest of it, what would you like to hear from the Fed chair right now or should I say in Wednesday's press conference? I think everything's got to be focused on inflation. You're starting to see the language at the Fed change and the language even from the administration, from Janet Yellen change. I just think it changed a little too late for them to be able to change the script. But I think from, for the, at least for the near term, the focus has got, got to be inflation, inflation, inflation. Unemployment as a consequence will end up being a distant second, which is bad news if you're at the very bottom of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, of the food chain here, which is why I think inflation is the most regression. I mean, if you think about regressive taxes, there can be no more regressive tax and inflation. And I'm afraid that the people who feel the pain the most are the people who can least afford it. Absolutely. So in other words, if you are most concerned about the welfare of the lowest income, inflation is as equal, if not greater, a concern as high unemployment. And that's what they're going through now. So let's turn it back to the market, your bread and butter. Again, for investors here who are sitting down 20 percent, if they're lucky, that's just kind of the average investor from the recent highs. Uh, they've, they've heard Professor Siegel, Jeremy Siegel, saying, OK, you know, a year from now, you put some cash to work, you're going to feel OK about it. What would you say, not only as kind of a market call, but in terms of the underpinnings valuation-wise of what's going on here? I don't share Professor Siegel's optimism that stocks always win in the long term. I remember my history outside the U.S. When you invested in the Nikkei in 1988, you're still waiting. 
So I think people have to, you know, if they invest in stocks, have to recognize that even long term, there are risks in stocks. I do think that at some point in time, you have to think about entering the market. You can't sit on cash for the rest of your life. But I think you got to be selective. I mean, I think the one good news that comes out of this is there are great companies that were out of reach because of their pricing over the last decade. Many of them are going to come within reach, but it's going to take a lot of, you know, it's going to take guts to to kind of put the, you know, press the buy button because I think you need to at least selectively invest in stocks and be disciplined enough to say, look, I'm going to invest 20% of my cash every three months for the next five months. And that might be the only way you get back into the market. Otherwise, you're going to stay so paralyzed that you're going to sit on cash essentially for the next decade. And you don't really think that our market is analogous to Japan's bubble, is it? Do you think ours was that bad? No, I don't think so. I mean, I I think that, but I think that's my pushback against stocks always when in the long term is they sometimes don't. And you have to build that into your investment strategy is at least leave open the chance that that could happen. So I think I don't think you should plan for a catastrophe, but you have to have escape hatches built in case there's a catastrophe. All right. I mean, so if you're in crypto, the catastrophe is unfolding in front of your eyes. Right, and you warned uh, about it uh, for months now, all the way, all the way down, really. Aswath, thanks for your time again today. It's great to see you. Thank you, Kelly. Aswath Demoter in NYU. After Friday's hot inflation number, the case for a bigger rate hike on Wednesday is growing. Jeffrey is saying, we believe the inflation data are game changers. We are thus changing our call and are now expecting a 75 basis point increase. Barclays noting the May CPI was even firmer than expectations, driven by broad-based price pressures with little indication that these have peaked. We now expect the FOMC to hike 75 basis points at next week's meeting. Now, 75, though, by policymakers, could seem to imply panic. 50, on the other hand, might seem like they're not following the data. Let's bring in Bill Lee. He's Milken Institute's chief economist. Bill, welcome. What do you think and uh, predict they will do? Well, Kelly, you said, asked me three months ago in March, what's wrong with raising rates by 100 basis points? And I said, the markets aren't ready for it. Well, right now you're seeing the markets are daring the Fed to raise by 100 basis points Hmm. or, or at least 75. But unfortunately, Chair Powell is a consensus builder. He's not a Paul Volcker and a leader. So I don't expect he will take up the challenge that the markets have thrown down and say, "Okay, let's go 75 because the markets are anticipating it. We need it. And we will restore our credibility. Instead, he's going to say, I promise you 50. I'm going to give you 50. But, you know, watch out next time, because as the data get worse, we're going to do more. And that's about as far as he's going to go. You phrase that interestingly, though, and I've heard from a number of traders who agree. They think that the market is actually saying to the Fed, go ahead and do something bigger here. That's not to say it's priced in fully, but there's an opening, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And and the markets, I think, are in a a mindset where they are absolutely convinced it takes a huge recession induced by high rates to knock this inflation out of of the the, the numbers. And unfortunately, the markets are, and the Fed itself is underappreciating how important a balance sheet tool could be. The Fed could could really tighten policies very nicely, raise long-term rates and not raise the short-term rates as much, which is where a lot of small business loans are, inventory loans. And, and that, that would really crush the economy. And they could really preserve the, 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 the recovery by saying we're going to accelerate the balance sheet and raise 20, 75 basis points. Do you think they're being a little gun shy on the pace of balance sheet tightening because of the repo crisis that happened the last time around in 2018 and 2019? 
Absolutely. The great unknown for most economists at the Fed and for all of us in the financial markets is what impact will an accelerated price of QT have on the repo market and the plumbing of the financial system? Well, you know, if whatever happens, right, the one thing that we know we can do is we can fix it. But the one thing we have to set out there is that the Fed is credible in being an inflation fighter. And the fact that it's tying its one hand behind its back and not using all its tools is, to me, absolutely shameful. So we could say if you were on the FOMC this week, Bill, you would dissent in favor of a larger balance sheet reduction, uh, maybe not so much on the rate side of things. But what should they do now to get ahead of a problem that you just heard uh, Professor DeMotorin articulating quite well that they probably needed to have gotten ahead of a year ago? A year ago is a year ago. What's gone is gone. Looking forward, the Fed has got to say, I'm going to take up the Volcker Draghi challenge and say, I'm going to lead. And unfortunately, Chair Powell just doesn't have that kind of personality to say, let's do what it takes to get rid of the inflation expectations that are being built into the economy. Right now, the last thing the Fed ever wants to see is inflation expectations getting unanchored, and we're on our way to letting that happen. What about those who say, you know what, this is just an energy market problem, and uh, maybe Washington or the White House should be taking the lead instead? That's what we said in the 1970s when we said, oh, we need some wage price controls because it's really this market, that market, it's the market for peanuts. I mean, it, you know, you can always find some markets that are more excessively priced than others. But the general problem is we've got way too much demand for the amount of supply that's out there. Regardless of what's caused supply to shrink, the Fed's job is to equilibrate supply and demand. And the Fed has not done that. All right. We'll leave it there. Bill, thank you very much. We'll hear from the Fed itself in about 48 hours time. Bill Lee. Now to the most unimaginable headline of the year. The mortgage rate, which was below 3 percent six months ago, has officially surged above 6 percent today and then some. Let's bring in Diana Olick with all the details. Diana. Well, Kelly, you're right. We got a six handle on the 30 year fix. And that's the first time we've seen that since 2008. The average rate today came in at 6.13 percent. That's according to Mortgage News Daily. Just a note, though, from COO Matthew Graham, who said it was very hard for him to calculate this today in his lender survey. He said lender quotes are ranging from 5.625 with big upfront costs or so-called points to 6.375 with no points because some lenders want to get that five in there. So we started this year, as you said, around three and a quarter. Now we're over six. That means the monthly payment on a $400,000 home went from around $1,400 at the beginning of this year to $1,945 in just six months. That's for a loan with 20% down. So it's no wonder the home building ETF, ticker ITB, it's getting hammered. This includes big builder names as well as some of the home improvement companies like Home Depot, Lowe's, and Sherwin-Williams. Not only have mortgage rates shot up more than half a percentage point in just the last three days, but home prices are showing no relief and we are starting to get wind of increasing inventory. And one final note, a little over a year ago, the monthly cost of owning a home and renting were virtually identical, and that's as calculated by John Burns Real Estate Consulting. Now, owning a home costs $839 more per month than renting. This differential is almost $200 higher than at any time since the turn of the century, Kelly. Wow, that's really interesting. So basically, it's always about $600 more to own versus rent. Now it's more than $800. And so if that pushes people back into the rents market, you could argue that would worsen the rents problem, where we've also seen inflation. Right. We've seen incredible inflation with both multifamily rents and single-family rents. So rent is becoming much less affordable. We're not seeing enough supply come into the single-family or even the multifamily rental market. So again, it, it depends 
what are you going to choose? You know, pick your poison on owning versus renting at this point. Yeah, everything pointed higher. A fascinating new numbers and big, big headlines there. Diana, thank you very much. Our Diana Olick. Coming up, Bitcoin slumping back to below $23,000 and shares of Coinbase are sliding as well. We have details on all of the crypto sell-offs next and whether there are any bright spots. Plus, only three Dow stocks are still positive for the quarter, and one of them is still a buy, according to our next guest. We have the names he's looking at, including one takeover target. As we head to break, let's get a quick check on stocks. The Dow's down 716 points, about 200 off the lows. The Nasdaq is back below 11,000 on a nearly 4% sell-off. Russell 2000, actually the worst performer, though small caps down more than 4%. And the 10-year note now at 334. We're back in a moment. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. The crypto freefall continues with another $200 billion in value wiped out from the sector just over the weekend. Bitcoin down 13% today, dipping below 23,000. It's now 66% off the highs. Ethereum, even worse, down 17% today, down 75% from the highs. And the ProShares Bitcoin ETF down 18% today and 67% from the highs. My next guest called this drop a few weeks ago, saying the crypto winter is just beginning. For more, let's welcome in Kavita Gupta. She's founder and general partner partner of Delta Blockchain. The insiders are supposed to be bullish, Kavita, but this is undeniable. I mean, and you think this could get a lot worse still? Uh, hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I think we have started seeing this going back. Uh, the price is going down and we're going to see a little bit more dump. I mean, uh, we were always looking for crypto winter earlier this year, and I strongly, truly believe that we have not seen the bottom yet. And is that just because prices got, I mean, how long have you been in this space? Did you just say this has gotten too crazy? It's obvious we're reversing here. We need a shakeout. And, and you still think what 14, 18,000 could be that shakeout level for Bitcoin? I've been here since 2013. This is my third crypto winter. Wow. And believe me, I. Uh, and in every crypto winter, we have seen is this the bottom yet? Is this the bottom yet? But we see a new all time low. Um, I do believe that, as I called three around couple, two, three weeks back, that we're going to see uh, Bitcoin uh, going around early 20s. And I still truly believe what I said earlier that I do see an all time low around 14, somewhere between 14 to 16K for Bitcoin. And I do you see uh, late three digits for ETH. 
Uh, and that's just not because I'm doing a market predict prediction and I want to make sure this is not a financial advice. Uh, but I truly believe that what we're going to see is the market sentiments taking over and which is going to appear off one after another, taking out a lot of fluff. We're going to see big DeFi projects actually losing a lot of liquidity. We're going to see NFT valuations going down. And that just keep on having the sentiments of a triggering effect on one onto other. So what about those who curse the day they ever heard about crypto or NFTs <laughs> or the rest of it? I mean, you are this is still your livelihood. You've been through these before. What happens on the other side? I still feel it was the very blessed day, the day I heard about crypto. Because at the end of the day, it's like any other market. Earlier on your show, you were talking about mortgage securities, the mortgage prices. Before that, talking about the inflation and Fed prices. It's very similar to that, right? We do see a market volatility. It's a new currency. It's a new asset. So we do see a much higher volatility. I would say that for the builders in the space, it was never supposed to be speculative currency. It has become a speculative currency. But from Delta, we truly believe in building great products. So I think for the builders in the space, this is a perfect time to build products, which can actually be proof of all the different sort of staking and pegging from stable coins to DeFi products, which we are seeing. On NFTs, I feel like we're going to actually see the real valuation. We started with the big hype. Uh, with the NFT market. And now we're actually going to see how many of those pieces are really going to hold. And so is this a moment to still get in early on a, a nascent asset class or was the whole thing a joke enabled by Fed liquidity? And for those who kind of are intrigued by, let's say, Bitcoin or NFTs and their promise, what are some of the ways you think are best to build long term wealth in this space? Uh, really smart questions. Uh, I, I truly believe that this is a long-term platform. If you really believe, don't go with the speculative currencies. Believe in the technology behind it. Believe that there are going to be products on the decentralized systems and the world. And that's what's going to drive the prices and the value of these tokens. Um, I truly believe that this is still early to go. Uh, I The question which you asked me, is this just a joke and it's going to get disappeared? I've been asked that question back in 16. I've been asked that question not very long ago in 19 and 20. Um, I truly believe that every time there is a reason for people to lose their faith in fiat currencies, as we saw during COVID time. We move towards what we feel like is much more safe and secure and we can travel with and very decentralized. And my faith continues to be in this decentralized ecosystem. Final question then. It seems like the current ecosystem has still got some shrinking to do. These headlines just this morning that BlockFi is laying off 20 percent of its staff, Coinbase rescinding offers and that kind of thing. What does that tell you? Um, first of all, I want to say uh, BlockFi, I was one of the first investors in BlockFi through my last fund. Uh, amazing company, what they're building. But I think this is the time, in even in Web2 or regular world, in the technology world, there's a growth phase where you really expand your team. And then the market doesn't support it. And you really have to start planning for three years of just the hold on phase where you do want to expand, but you probably don't want to expand into a lot of marketing, a lot of HR, a lot of events. And I think that's what we see with BlockFi. There are 20% cut news, which we saw today. I think the great thing is uh, if you see the comment from Zach, the CEO and the founder, it's very clear that they're like, we're still going to build, we're still going to service all our customers. We are not failing. We are just tightening our belt to make sure by the time the next bullish market comes, we are there on the top. And I think that's the right sentiment to go. All right, Kavita, great to have you on today. You got a gut feel for how long crypto windows going to last this time around? 
Uh, I think we're going to see a little bit spike early next year, depends upon how the social, economic, political situation with this war and gas prices on continue in the winter. But I do see overall end of next year or mid-year after that is when we're going to be another bullish market. All right. Kavita Gupta, thank you so much. We appreciate all your time and insight today. Still ahead, we're tracking the sell-off in the tech stocks with some of the mega cap names now down 30% or more from their highs. We'll tell you what to watch for any signs of a potential turnaround. And as we head to break, here's the Dow heat map with Boeing, Salesforce, and Dow Inc., the biggest decliners. Three names are in the green right now, Coke, McDonald's, and Travelers. The exchange is back after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. At the lows, the Dow is down 899 points, so we're 150 points off that level right now. Take a look at the NASDAQ, which is below 11,000. It's the worst performer today, down 4%. Energy leading the declines, even though oil turned positive earlier on, energy is down almost 5%. And it's the only one of the 11 sectors not down 10% from the highs, but it is getting close. Consumer discretionary down the most, about 36% from its high back in November. Etsy and Under Armour, some of the biggest decliners since then. Today, Today, the travel stocks are also among the biggest laggards in the S&P. The cruise lines have collapsed about 26% in the past week. You can see 10, 11% declines today. Hotels and booking names also struggling. Airbnb booking holdings and Expedia down 6, 7, 8%. And the airlines down 9%. The big three are on pace for their worst month since March of 2020. Big problem, higher jet fuel prices. And speaking of which, as we mentioned, crude did turn positive. It's around 120 $1 a barrel, just below that level right now, up a quarter of 1%. Gasoline futures, Arbob, that's the fourth one there. Still above $4. The national average for gasoline prices officially, as you know, above $5 a gallon for the first time ever. At the high end, it's six forty-three in California. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler? All right, Kelly, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. The House's January 6th committee has wrapped up its second public hearing of the month. Republican Liz Cheney set the stage for clips from interviews the panel did previously with aides to former President Trump, who said they had told him the 2020 election wasn't stolen. You will also hear testimony that President Trump rejected the advice of his campaign experts on election night and instead followed the course recommended by an apparently inebriated Rudy Giuliani to just claim he won and insist that the vote counting stop to falsely claim everything was fraudulent. 
Well, the White House says President Biden was not a close contact, contact as defined by the CDC of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who has tested positive for COVID. It's his second infection. The two leaders did both attend the Summit of the Americas late last week. And Mick Jagger has also tested positive for COVID, forcing the Rolling Stones to cancel their concert in Amsterdam tonight. Jagger, who is 78 and still can't get no satisfaction, performed with the band last Friday in Liverpool, part of their Stones 60 Europe 22 tour. Tonight on the news, why there's renewed criticism of the Biden administration's border policies. Kelly, meantime, back to you. All right, Tyler, see you shortly. Coming up, coal's dropping more than 33% over the past two months as a search for a suitor. One stock picker says it's a buy. Either way, we have that next. And this month, we have some financial planning tips to help protect your money during market turmoil. Here's senior personal finance correspondent, Sharon Epperson. Here's a tip for your money, your future. Holding on to some cash is critical in a market downturn. Yet a recent poll by Morning Consult finds only 37% of boomers say they've made progress in creating an emergency fund. Financial advisors recommend keeping sufficient cash reserves in a savings account that is separate from your investments. That way you don't have to tap into equities or other long-term assets if you need money and can avoid locking in losses when stocks slide. For CNBC, I'm Sharon Epperson. Welcome back, everybody. The market stocks extending Friday's sell-off. The Dow shedding 900 at the low so far. The Nasdaq was down 4.5%. We're just off that right now. My next guest, though, says all hope is not lost. He's got some buys amid the wreckage. He's actually sticking with old tech. You see some of the names there. David Bonson joins me now. He's the chief investment officer at the Bonson Group. David, can you weigh in on this kind of top-level discussion about being in stocks at all right now? Are you going to be kicking yourself in a year that you didn't get in or are you going to be sitting pretty because we could be in for a prolonged period of pain? No, I think in a year people will be kicking themselves. And that's not to say that things will be 20 or 30 percent higher in a year. It's to say that this asset class is intended for long term investors and for a long term investor to miss those points at which there is distress and, and price depreciation is to take away a ton of the long-term gains that come for being in stocks. And so one year, three year, five year, you have to ride out certain periods of volatility. I think everyone knows that. I think history speaks to it very clearly, but it's hard during periods like this. And then you have to find things to do to make it less hard. Focus on quality, don't get overly speculative. You know, the heavy concentration in NASDAQ type names is hard to bear, but we think there's a better way for people. Are the 70s a good analogy for what we could be going through now? I mean, what are the lessons for investing in kind of a, a high inflation environment where you don't know how long that environment exactly is going to last? Yeah, it's very difficult to compare this to the 70s for a lot of reasons. The Federal Reserve was much less interventionist in the 70s. People could have said that's a bad thing or a good thing. You know, when you had the 74, 75 bear market, we were only three years removed from President Nixon taking us off the last vestiges of the gold standard. So the world has changed a lot in the last 48 years. I know that because I was born in 1974. <laughs> and Kelly, I think that right now, um, people are primarily trying to guess what, the, what people are gonna guess about what the Fed does. That's no way to invest. 
People have to look at fundamental value. We do that by looking at dividends and cash flows and buy companies that long-term are gonna give that great return. One sort of final remark about the analogies is if you look back to the 70s, it's a little disconcerting that even the deep recessions didn't stop inflation. Do you think that was just a unique phenomenon of the time or does it point to something we're still gonna to have to grapple with here today? No, I believe that so much of this inflation is, in fact, supply side driven and that uh, even what Volcker did in the early 80s, I think, gets a lot of attention for good reason. But we miss out on the incredible supply side issues, lower marginal tax rates, deregulation. There's a lot of things that can solve some of this inflation. Look, uh, core inflation uh, can start to come down. Headline inflation is the problem. Food and energy. People eat. People drive. But there really are supply side solutions to a lot of that. So I don't think it's going to require the Fed to put us into a recession that lasts for a long time, like early 80s and mid 70s. Yeah, no, it does make you wonder you know, outcome of midterms, maybe outcome of next election and what that, you know, then you have to kind of game through those scenarios. Let's leave all that to the side. You do have a bunch of stocks, David, that you think offer uh, some value right now. Run us through them and, and why. Yeah, I mentioned Kohl's, ticker KSS, in, in the notes I sent you all ahead of time. And it's funny, uh, we do not get engaged in merger arbitrage. Like, we would not be buying Kohl's just because there's a $60 takeout on the table and it was a $45 stock this morning. It's $40.41 right now. Um, however, there's this sort of possibility of an immediate push higher. And if that falls apart, we still like it. So it's not a merger arb play. It's fundamental. $1.7 billion of free cash flow last year. $1.2 billion the year before. And then they had a, a difficult second quarter, which they've had a difficult second quarter, I think three of the last five years. But now the stock's trading at six or seven times earnings. So we have to look to free cash flows as value investors, a 5% dividend yield. We like this either in a takeout or not. And IBM and 3M, same thing, both offer about a 5% yield right now. But do you think that your returns are safe? I do, definitely. And I think that with uh, 3M, you're just getting to buy at a really low level. Uh, we would have liked the stock $50 higher as well. It's one of these long-term type companies that makes things people have to have. IBM's a fascinating story. You talk about a hybrid of value and growth, similar to the way we talked about Microsoft over 10 years ago, that it was so cheap and so the stock had been down for so long, it was, a, it was showing up in value indexes, and yet it had this high growth potential in the cloud. IBM is a pure value play, low multiple, but they're now a major player in cloud with the Red Hat acquisition. They have done significant things in artificial intelligence, blockchain, uh, the actual side of blockchain that can really be meaningful and actually make people money. So we think IBM is a 5% dividend payer that has great stock price appreciation in front of it. All right. Well, some constructive ideas and a destructive tape. So we appreciate it, David, very much. David Bonson joining me this afternoon. Still ahead, the sell-off in tech is persisting. Apple's in the low 130s as it can escape the selling pressure. Up next, we'll look at what it'll take for each of these companies to turn things around. The story's a little bit different for each one of them. As we head to break, here are the biggest laggards on the NASDAQ 100 today. DocuSign, Splunk, Okta, and Datadog. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back, everybody. Another painful day for the tech stocks. Amazon falling 6%. It's just off that level right now. Apple down 3%. It's in the low 130s. Each has its own special reasons for these struggles, though. Our Steve Kovac is here with more. Steve. Yeah, Kelly, I really wanted to break down what's going on with each of these individual companies. So let's start with Apple right now. It's down about 24% so far this year and over 2% today. It was up down as much as 3%. The biggest concern here, how much impact are COVID shutdowns in China having on sales? Apple warned during their last earnings up to $8 billion could be impacted by those uh, shutdowns in China. And we're also looking for signs the COVID surge in China is ending and if they can maintain demand for the iPhone. Meanwhile, Amazon is the laggard of the group today. It was down more than 5%, as much as 6% earlier in the day. Challenges to rein in costs after spending too much to increase capacity in their warehouses during the pandemic. Similar to other retailers, they also need to manage their inventory better. We saw that with Target earlier this month. Report last month uh, saying that they're actually going to sublet 10 million square feet of extra warehouse space. And then there's Meta also having a rough year, down more than 50% and sliding another 4% today, losing use users in the U.S. for their first time last quarter, and competition with TikTok is creating more headwinds along with those Apple iOS privacy changes. And they're struggling to monetize their own TikTok competitor called Instagram Reels, and that's not going to help much with Sheryl Sandberg on her way out the door. And then we have Microsoft down about 2%, and for that, it's all about the cloud. While the growth is still in the high 40% year over year, it's flat and they revised their guidance down earlier this month due to the strong dollar causing those foreign exchange headwinds. And finally, let's talk about Alphabet down 3%, battling those pandemic comps and slowing growth, especially on YouTube, not to mention affecting a lot of these internet companies. There's concerns over advertising as consumer demand shifts from goods to services, as we keep hearing, Kelly. No, it's a litany of factors. It's a Lollapalooza. Yeah, but it all boils down to COVID if you think about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it all impacting demand on the one hand or supply on the other hand. What's the buzz these days about tech? I mean, do people feel like this is going, forget crypto winter, is that telling us that we're going to go through tech winter? Maybe not so much yeah. for the mega cap companies, but the mood in Silicon Valley, you know, look at the layoff announcements that we've started to see where do we go from here? Yeah, I was actually in San Francisco all week last week to cover right. the Apple event, but I was also meeting with CEOs and other people out there. And it's really funny to hear from kind of the older guard who's like, look, we've been through this before. We lived through 2001. 2008 wasn't as bad. Uh, we can do this again. The healthy companies are going to be okay. It's the growth companies, like we saw with Uber, are going to have to actually show real profits now. So that's kind of the buzz out there. And we, I mean, every day it feels like we get another tech company out there saying we're going to pause hiring or slow hiring or freeze hiring. Hiring. Right. Uh, and we're even seeing that at Microsoft and other big Is companies. Is there still liquidity sloshing around? I mean, you could argue in some sense there are companies who have private funding rounds that maybe don't see public markets as an option. But, you know, they, it doesn't mean that the rug has been completely pulled out from under them. It's just you're talking, a question. You're of, talking like private startups? Or, yeah, yeah, startups. You know, I'm thinking, I, again, I, the larger ones, probably the bellwethers that will that will be able to get through this. But in terms of the startup culture, it's going to lead to that next five to ten yeah. years of innovation and new companies. Yeah, and the common thing, you know, we always think during a recession, this is the time for the next startup to come, the next Google, the next Microsoft or whatever. But you can also keep in mind one thing that concerns me if you're really looking for that. 
so many of the startups right now, it's all crypto and Web3 and blockchain stuff. And we know how that's faring right now. True. So you need to find kind of a diamond in the rough, maybe outside of that space to, yeah. to look for that. And I haven't seen anything there. Oh, so interesting. Steve, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks. Good Kel. to see you. Steve Kovac. Coming up, what do the charts say about Apple? According to one technician, it's looking oversold. Could be a good sign. Whether you have to act now and snap it up at these levels, we'll talk about that. Also, take a look at the junk bond and high-yield bond ETFs, the JNK and HYG. They're both gapping lower again today. We're back to 2016 levels, down 2.5% or so as markets struggle. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're off the lows. We are. The Dow's down 575. The S&P down 100. That's what a decent afternoon looks like now as stocks continue their slide. The S&P this morning is back in bear territory. It's down about 21% from the highs and back at its March 2021 lows. My next guest checked the charts and he says margins are at extremes. He's got three names that could be poised to rally. Let's welcome in Ari Wald. He's managing director and head of technical analysis at Oppenheimer. Uh, real quick, Ari, which kind of margins are you talking about? That's a good question. I, I don't know what types of margins uh, I'm talking about. What I'm talking about <laughs> is this. I think it's important to uh, acknowledge that uh, the market, the, the bear, it's very bearish trading going on in the market right now. Point two, we've been of the view this is a bear cycle. Don't think it's run its course either. I think this continues through the week, summer months. Uh, the point we want to stress here, Kelly, is that with the S&P 500 down 22% from its January peak, down 10% month to date. I don't think today is the day to be making any overly bearish calls on the market. Uh, even down cycles don't go in a straight line. I think there could be some intervening rallies in between. And yeah. um, perhaps even for long-term investors looking for some opportunities on the sell-off. Okay. And I see now where this is coming from because you, you, you're saying market indicators have reached marginal extremes. So yes, like you're saying, it feels extreme. It is extreme uh, by some measures. But you also say we haven't attained a deep enough condition to suggest that a major low has formed still. Uh, that That is still correct. I, I think uh, the, that our indicators, as, as you set up there now, I understand as well, uh, have reached kind of at a minimum uh, levels that we'd like to see to, as terms of our market bottom checklist. I think they can be deeper. Seasonals are still poor. So you still have these headwinds going against us. But ultimately, we are the view that this does set up the secular bull market's next big opportunity as we think about the fourth quarter. Uh, so really, it's how do we get there? How do we weather the storm in the intervening period? I think it really is based on time horizon. I wanted to talk about three sectors today with you. Uh, two, in terms of just leadership of the market, like utilities and materials that are showing relative strength and rank high in our momentum work. And in terms of long-term rota uh, rotation, for those that can see through what should be some additional bouts of ongoing volatility, uh, I think tech, probably more so large cap tech, uh, does set up uh, um, yeah, as far as an opportunity for the long term. Okay, great. And you have specific names here. So on the utility side, DTE Energy and Materials, Reliant Steel. And then in, in big tech, you are talking about Apple. What do you see happening with Apple here? Yeah, so it's still in the penalty box, if you will. It's going to get whipped around by this weak market here. It's below its moving averages. What I like about it or, or what's showing up for us is how it's performing versus the overall sector. If you were to plot Apple versus the tech sector, it uh, broke out to the upside on a relative basis. It's corrected back into support. So this leads me to believe that Apple should begin to produce alpha again 
versus a relatively weak tech sector. Here's the thing with, so tech is a low momentum area of the market. It's been a key laggard. It's a, a culprit area. It's dragged on this market almost most heavily. Uh, the thing with low momentum, it typically underperforms into a major market low and then shows very strong returns at the turn of a cycle. It makes for good rotation. So th that could still be a fourth quarter idea. You still need interest rates to abate here. No signs of that today. You still need the market to stabilize. So again, this is a longer term idea. But I think the large cap tech side versus, say, small cap tech is better positioned to work over the long term, given what we're seeing and how stocks like Apple are performing versus their peers and versus the overall sector. All right. We'll leave it there. I mean, it, finally, is there anything you'd read into the fact that utilities and materials are breaking out? What does that tell you? Tells us low volatility exposure remains warranted. We've seen this risk off rise in interest rates and utilities do well. And on the materials, uh, commodity um, metal side, we, you know, Reliance Steel, we mentioned, um, a, a hedge here should these inflationary pressures continue to linger. Uh, some of these stocks breaking out of levels from a year ago, consolidating, wow. holding their 200-day average. And look uh, set up to continue to work here in this environment. All right. I'm being hypnotized by the charts behind you. It's very soothing. Just why, Or maybe it's not soothing, depending <laughs> on how you're positioned. Ari, thanks for all your ideas and for your time today. Appreciate it. Ari Wald from Oppenheimer. Now, those rising gas and food costs are hitting the restaurant stocks, but not all brands are created equally. The names with pricing power, that can outperform. We have them next. Welcome back. One more thing before we go. The restaurant stocks getting hit again today amid the broader sell-off and the names particularly sensitive to rising gas prices. Well, those are doing the worst as consumers reassess spending. Even a stalwart like Chipotle down 6%. Kate Rogers is here with the companies that have pricing power. Kate. Hey, Kelly, with inflation in focus and gas prices above $5 a gallon on average, analysts are starting to raise warnings about a restaurant slowdown, but some names will be better positioned than others to stand up to these challenges. Now, during the last recession, the average same-store sales growth for publicly traded limited-service restaurants declined less than 2% compared to a more than 7% decline for full-service restaurants on average, according to Bank of America. And two names that were able to hold up a bit better thanks to size and scale were McDonald's and Darden, the parent company of Olive Garden. Goldman Sachs, Cowan, BTIG, and Bank of America have also picked names that cater to higher-income consumers, more insulated from inflation like Starbucks, Chipotle, and Sweetgreen, that may be able to flex that pricing power and hang on to diners in this environment. But while many of those names have not yet seen a pullback, executives are definitely watching. Take a listen to Starbucks CEO Howard at DealBook just last week. When I look at gas prices at six and getting to $7 a gallon, uh, we are on a collision course with time in terms of how long the American consumer, American family can continue to spend at the level they are. And so uh, it's hard to be optimistic unless there is a plan to get inflation under control. Now, expect this to be a big theme in Q2 earnings commentary, which is right around the corner. And again, Starbucks is a name with pricing power that does tend to cater to that higher income demographic. And even, he, even he's saying here we're on a collision course with time unless we get this under control. Back over to you. Still, Kate, it's fascinating that you know, we talk about the names with pricing power and how they should be more durable here. But a Chipotle is a classic example of that. And the stock has not. I mean, it's it's better than some, but it certainly hasn't. Uh, it's not like it's you know, been a preserver of value. 
Yeah, it's true, Kelly. And if you look at McDonald's, actually, year-to-date, it's still down, I think, around 10 percent. But it's certainly holding up a bit better than some of the other names that we know have pricing power. We've heard it from their executives. Consumers are not yet pulling back. Investors may be getting a little concerned because the meal may be a little more expensive at Chipotle than it would be at McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's tends to cater to a lower-income demographic, but it did hold up well in the last recession. Perhaps that's why it's holding on a bit more in this environment. But all these names are really getting hit hard. Yeah, for sure. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers. Thank you. Well, the national- National average for gasoline is above $5 a gallon now. One analyst sees a few things on the horizon that could push prices lower. What they are and when things could cool off is ahead on Power Lunch, which begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.